History this week, August 25th, 1797. I'm Sally Helm. The pamphlet had a very long name. Quote, Observations on certain documents contained in numbers 5 and 6 of the history of the United States for the year 1796, in which the charge of speculation against Alexander Hamilton, late Secretary of the Treasury, is fully refuted, written by himself. End quote. Alexander Hamilton has spent weeks in a Philadelphia boarding house writing. He's facing a slew of scandalous charges in the press. A journalist named James Callender has written that Hamilton, when he was the Treasury Secretary, was corrupt. That he was trying to enrich himself when he should have been focusing on the young country. Callender loves to stir the pot. So he's also written something else, not really about government at all. He says that Hamilton had an affair that he's been unfaithful to his wife, Elizabeth Schuyler. Hamilton wants to defend himself publicly. He works furiously on his response. And finally, in the last week of August, he's ready to publish. 37 pages of writing plus 58 additional pages of supporting documentation. He has the pamphlet printed at a shop in Philadelphia and pretty soon, it's everywhere. the pages of this pamphlet, you can tell that Hamilton is angry that this journalist has tried to paint him as corrupt. The Jacobin newspapers continually ring with odious insinuations and charges against many of our most virtuous citizens, etc. But then he gets to the juicy part. He writes, the charge against me is in connection with one James Reynolds. He says that he and Reynolds have not been involved in corrupt financial speculation, as Callender said. No, no. Hamilton writes, My real crime is an amorous connection with his wife. He admits to the entire affair in detail how he met with Mariah Reynolds in his own house while his wife and children were away, how her husband found out and so Hamilton paid him off, all of it right there in the pamphlet. Quote, written by himself. Today, America's first sex scandal. Why did Alexander Hamilton openly confess his affair? And if he hadn't, how might American history have unfolded differently? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
To hear this story, we called up Professor Elizabeth Cobbs. She made time to talk with us amid other very important business. I hear it's your birthday. It is my birthday. Happy birthday. Thank, Thank you for doing you. this on your birthday. Oh, um, it's my pleasure. What better thing to do than to talk about such a juicy subject? Cobbs has a PhD in American history from Stanford, and she teaches at Texas A&M University. She's written several nonfiction histories. But her book, The Hamilton Affair, is actually a novel. Yes. I mean, I just think one great way to bring people into history is through fiction. She started working on the book before Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical made Hamilton a pop figure. Her publishers initially turned her down. They said, oh, this story about Alexander Hamilton is such a great story. And they're like, no one will ever buy a book about Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) (laughs) But she convinced them. We've got sex, we've got violence, we have duels, we have cannons, explosions, no car chases, but, you know, the colonial era equivalent of it. So much to work with. Partly because Alexander Hamilton left reams of documents and letters behind. But his wife, Elizabeth Schuyler, she didn't leave much. Women in Alexander Hamilton's life, like women throughout history, People didn't really write about them, and they didn't keep their own records, and they burned their letters. You're trying to put a thousand-piece puzzle together, and for someone like Alexander Hamilton, there are 1,312 pieces of this 1,000-piece puzzle. When you look at someone like Eliza Schuyler, it's a thousand-piece puzzle with 201 pieces. You have to use our imagination to get to the sort of the dark, blank corners of that puzzle. Cobbs is an academic. So she uses all the facts she can in her fiction. And then she imagines a historically accurate version of whatever has been left unrecorded. And even if you just look at the bare facts, Alexander Hamilton and Elizabeth Schuyler are an interesting match right from the start. Hamilton came from nothing. You know, had no inherited wealth, unlike any other of our founders. Around age 10, he's an orphaned penniless bastard son in the far fringes of the Caribbean. And 10 years later, he's riding alongside George Washington as his principal aide and leading the final charge at Yorktown in the American Revolution. Elizabeth Schuyler, on the other hand, was the second daughter of Philip Schuyler, an important general and politician. She married an orphan, a man without money, without family, and she had both. And at a time when there was no reason for her to do that, I mean, you know, she could have had much better matches. But Hamilton made a name for himself in the Revolutionary War and then in government. In September of 1789, he was appointed to be George Washington's Secretary of the Treasury, responsible for the nation's finances. It's a very complicated and controversial job. I mean, his friends advised him, don't take that job. (laughs) But Hamilton does. He's committed to this new nation, and he wants to set its economy on the right track. He gets into various political scrapes, fights with Jefferson and Madison about trade wars and other economic policies. But he also develops a reputation as a committed public servant. Hamilton was really renowned for being a very kind and generous soul. I think that goes back to the early injustices he and his mother and his family experienced, that he wanted to make a world which would be a better one. People know this about Hamilton. And so, in the summer of 1791, 
a woman named Mariah Reynolds approaches him to ask for help. Hamilton is living in Philadelphia at the time. His wife and the children are back home in New York for the summer. So Hamilton is alone. One day, Mariah Reynolds knocks on his door. He invites her into a study and she tells him, you know, I'm a New Yorker like you and I've been abandoned by my husband. And, you know, these are already things that are going to excite the sympathy of a man like him, right? A person abandoned by his father, a person without resources who has to look to government, you know, to, to provide something that the system doesn't. So she asks him for money just to get back home. And he says, oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I'd be happy to help you. Um, I, I don't have cash on me right now, but I'll get some and I'll have it sent to your house or I'll bring it by. Where, what's your address? And it turns out she's living in a boarding house, you know, three or four blocks from him. And so he gets money and takes it to her home and, you know, goes up this kind of rickety staircase in this dim boarding house and knocks on her door. And she invites him into what is clearly her bedroom. And, uh, and it's there that she <laughs> lets him know, <laughs> as he said, uh, that something other than pecuniary cons- consolation <laughs> was required. In other words, she wanted more than just money to console her. And, uh, and console her, he does. Thus begins Hamilton's affair. I think he cares for her, but, you know, I think, let's face it, Sally, <laughs> it's all about the heat of the moment. You know, he's never met her before, and she must have been very, very attractive. With his wife out of town, the two of them meet in Hamilton's own house for months. It gets intense. The letters she wrote him were very, now. I can't live without you. You know, you mean everything to me. I feel like killing myself, you know, if you left me. I mean, this sort of language. And he thinks maybe she does love him. But at the same time, he says, you know, this is somebody who can adopt any character at will. So once he comes to know her, he realizes that she is this person that is completely unreliable and is, you know, very dramatic. And he doesn't know what to think. And by... You know, six months into the affair, he's ready to break it off. And that's when she comes to him and basically says, my husband wants a meeting with you. So Hamilton goes to see Mariah's husband. James Reynolds, who was a petty thief and a crook. He beats around the bush. Oh, I've lost the love of the most wonderful woman in the world. And Hamilton is kind of like, oh my God, you know, damage control. He's like, well, how can I help you then? And then James Reynolds says, let me think about how much, I mean, how you can help me. And then what happens just, you know, almost immediately after that are the requests for money. Hamilton starts paying James Reynolds to stay quiet. It's, you know, $50, $100, that kind of thing. This arrangement goes on for months. And Hamilton starts to suspect that he's been played right from the beginning. He thinks, you know, maybe it was all a plot. Eventually, Hamilton has had enough. Ultimately, what happens is that Reynolds just asks for more and more money, and he's tapped out, like another $300. And he's like, no, I can't. He's just making a calculated guess that Reynolds isn't going to go any further and not going to approach his wife because he's gotten all the money that Hamilton can spare. 
Hamilton and Mariah Reynolds stopped seeing each other in June of 1792. The affair lasted nearly a year. And then a few months later, in November. What happens is that James Reynolds gets himself thrown in the pokey for trying to impersonate veterans and collect veterans' pensions. I mean, talk about low. Reynolds wants to get out of jail. So he gets word to some influential people that he has dirt on the Secretary of the Treasury. I have some information you might be interested in. He's kept the letters, he's kept his side of the correspondence where Hamilton says, here's this money, I'm sending you $50. Reynolds claims that Hamilton was corrupt, that he was actually involved in the veterans' pension scheme. The accusations make it all the way to James Monroe, who is then a senator from Virginia. Monroe and two other uh, representatives uh, come to his office in the Treasury. And Hamilton says, come to my house tonight and I'll explain what this is about. So they do. An evening meeting uh, in the dark, dark months of the year in December. And it's at his home, you know, so we know it's, it's in his office. Eliza and the children must have been upstairs asleep. That night, Hamilton confesses. Not to corruption, of course, but to adultery. He pulls out the letters, the letters he has, and he says, this is the context for the letters that you have, um, which is, as you can see, this one's writing me, telling me she loves me, and her husband's writing me and saying, you know, I want money, and you can continue to see my wife. He wants them to know that this is just all what it is, was a private affair. By the way, Cobbs says there's no evidence that Hamilton ever had other affairs. And the opposition had plenty of motivation to find them if there were. So it's likely that this was his one big transgression. And it seems that he might get away with it. Monroe and the congressmen say they're willing to stay quiet about the affair. And they now believe that Hamilton isn't corrupt. They're convinced by these letters. And then he asks for them back, but Monroe says, well, you know, I think we need to keep these in case anyone in the legislature asks why we exonerated you. You know, we'd want to be able to show them this, but we'll keep them in a safe place. You know, we we certainly won't leak these to the press. And they don't. So he thinks that the issue is resolved. He and Elizabeth and the children live peacefully for the next five years. But this state of happiness, it doesn't last. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
By 1797, five years after the affair, a lot has changed. For one thing, Mariah Reynolds has divorced her husband. Her divorce attorney was Aaron Burr, who would end up killing Hamilton in a duel. Small world. And politically, for Hamilton, things are different. First of all, George Washington is now, you know, out of office. Hamilton is no longer Secretary of the Treasury. And Washington had been one of his biggest allies. The new president is John Adams, a Federalist like Hamilton, though the two of them often don't see eye to eye. And the opposing party, the Democratic-Republicans, they come after Hamilton. Now it's getting really dirty politics. Also coming after Hamilton is a journalist, James Callender. Callender was a Scottish immigrant. He had a good turn for satire and politics, and he actually got in trouble in Britain, which forced him to flee Great Britain for America. And then he comes to Philadelphia in the 1790s and makes a name for himself with reporting. Callender is willing to push the envelope a little, report on gossip. And in 1797, he somehow gets a hold of the letters between Hamilton and Reynolds. We don't know exactly how. Some people suspect a former clerk in the House of Representatives leaked them. But however he got them, Callender publishes the letters in a splashy, sensational series of pamphlets in June 1797. He accuses Hamilton of corruption. Again, the same charges that Monroe had already investigated. He says that Hamilton had been bilking (laughs) the government. And here now, ladies and gentlemen, for the first time, we have the letters that show that he was doing that with this help of this one James Reynolds. Remember, Hamilton had proven his innocence five years earlier. But Callender also accuses him of something that he is guilty of. The affair with Mariah Reynolds. So now... Hamilton is facing a false charge and a true one. And he makes a surprising decision. He undertakes the first and possibly only really public confession of a sex scandal in American government. He figures telling the truth about the affair is a way to clear his name when it comes to the corruption charges. And his reputation as an honest statesman is so important to him that he is willing to blow up his private life in order to make it clear that he has never been corrupt. So he writes everything down and publishes. The document becomes known as the Reynolds pamphlet. In the Reynolds pamphlet, he starts out by saying, hey guys, (laughs) (laughs) this was the subject of a very extensive investigation over a period of five months and they all found me completely innocent of any attempt to enrich myself. And of course, I think this is particularly hurtful to him because he says, you know, I am somebody who has been known widely as a character marked by an indifference to the acquisition of property rather than uh, an avidity for it. In other words, he's not a money grubber. He never has been. He gave up money, had none to begin with, gave up any opportunity to make money to go into government, made no money in government left relatively poor. And then he goes into explaining exactly what happened. That this correspondence with James Reynolds is not about improper speculation, but about the affair. And he says, quote, this confession is not made without a blush. 
He's feeling embarrassed and guilty. He writes, quote, I can never cease to condemn myself for the pang which it may inflict in a bosom eminently entitled to all my gratitude, fidelity, and love. In other words, Eliza. But he says that he thinks Eliza will, quote, approve that even at so great an expense, I should effectually wipe away a more serious stain from a name. He admits how terribly painful he knows this is for his family, and it's only the desire to serve his country and to show that the government of the country is, is honest, that he's revealing these facts. And so, he confesses everything. He goes into a degree of detail. He is an attorney, remember. He presents it all as if it's a legal argument. You know, here's this letter, and this document shows that, and then this shows this, and if I had done that, you know, I mean, it's like this very elaborate case, in the course of which he admits things like, you know, it was mostly in my wife's bed (laughs) that this happened, you know, in my own home. We don't know for certain, but the Reynolds pamphlet might very well have been the first time Eliza Hamilton learned about the affair. Eliza never tells anybody how she reacted. We do have letters from her sister Angelica to Eliza saying, I know how much this has wounded you. But what we do know in terms of what she actually does is Eliza Schuyler Hamilton is eight and a half months pregnant. She gets on a sloop that goes upriver to Albany where her parents are. She takes a two-day, you know, boat trip on a boat full of men to get away from her husband. She can go into labor at any minute. This is a time in which female mortality, maternal mortality is is high. So she risks a lot to get away from her husband at this moment. She's very lucky she goes into labor almost as soon as she gets home. It's one of those moments where the woman's side of the story is just not recorded. She does take him back, though. And they have two more children together. So something happens. Eliza and Alexander are able to move forward. But Alexander's public image never fully recovers. And this incident may have changed the course of the early Republic in a pretty significant way. Hamilton would have been a very logical candidate for president, could have run for the presidency, and probably would have. But I think that he probably opted out of that when they, when he saw Monroe walk out of his home with his letters to to Mariah Reynolds. He knew the political opposition just had the worst kind of personal dirt on him, something that would destroy Hamilton's family, you know, devastate them. Cobbs says, of course, a Hamilton presidency would have changed American history. Exactly how, we can only speculate. It's the old butterfly effect notion that, you know, one small thing changes and things too big to calculate change down the road. Hamilton had long been a kind of voice of caution in foreign relations. And so the War of 1812 might not have happened. If it hadn't happened, the other consequence is that the Federalist Party might not have died. That collapsed with the War of 1812. And the result of that was continued Southern dominance of the U.S. presidency up until Abraham Lincoln. And so what that meant was a kind of dominance of Southern, meaning slaveholding interests. But the Reynolds pamphlet likely ended any chance Hamilton had at winning the presidency. Still, it didn't completely end his political life. 
he remains such a powerhouse. People are always asking him, you know, Mm -hmm. what do you think? Hamilton's political fortunes actually started to go south because of another pamphlet, the Adams pamphlet. He publishes it just before the election of 1800. He basically, you know, writes a public letter saying that John Adams is, you know, a crazy man. <laughs> that he's a patriotic and virtuous man, but he's, you know, he's difficult and he's mercurial and he's got a bad temper. This contributed to Adams's loss to Thomas Jefferson in the 1800 presidential election. That leads Hamilton to become a persona non grata in politics. The affair? Not so much. But the Reynolds pamphlet still rocked the young nation. And it was kind of fragile form of government that was actually, you know, easily toppled by demagogues. And so they felt that men in politics really had to show the utmost personal virtue. Allegations of sex scandals or financial impropriety, they were taken very seriously, more seriously than we take them today. While things may be a little different now, Cobbs sees the whole Hamilton saga, especially the nasty way that it played out in the press, as a warning. I think that it reminds us how partisanship can be so destructive that, you know, the willingness to kind of continue to repeat innuendos and facts, which have even they've been verified that they're not fact, but an opposition uses them to beat down the other, that it's crippling. It's not in the spirit of patriotism. It's really about corruption in itself to keep repeating those things. I mean, at the highest level, that kind of partisanship led to real, real damage. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. This episode was produced by Ben Dickstein and Emma Fredericks. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Brian Flood. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. 